They say that a key role of news media is to speak truth to power, and if power is money, then, now more than ever, a lot of truth needs to be told to the tiny number of Silicon Valley moguls who have made more money than anyone in any business ever in recent years. But in 2022, some of these titans of tech have suffered a reversal of their financial fortunes, including the richest man in the world. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, they really aren't used to having their feet held to the fire by the media. In fact, one of the problems has been that the press has been too impressed by their successes and their style over the years and the promise of the innovations they've offered. That's the crowd at a show for the stand-up comedian Dave Chappelle making some noise for Elon Musk earlier this week. The billionaire Tesla chief executive might have expected a more rapturous welcome in the global tech hub of San Francisco, but things didn't get any easier. Cheers and bulls, I see. Elon. The crowd went on in that fashion for nearly 10 minutes. Musk received his jeering ovation after a tumultuous first few months as the owner of the social media platform Twitter, in which he botched the rollout of a new paid-for account verification system, laid off thousands of employees in questionably legal fashion, and generally alienated a lot of people by using his account to engage in near-constant right-wing trolling. He isn't the only billionaire tech titan to suffer a precipitous fall from grace in 2022. It was a year where many of Silicon Valley's more lofty promises ran into the hard wall of reality. Mark Zuckerberg has endured a deluge of bad headlines and a sharp dip in Meta's stock price after sinking $36 billion into a virtual reality metaverse that even his own employees don't use. Sam Bankman-Fried, the so-called good guy of crypto, was arrested earlier this week in the Bahamas over alleged fraud he committed in the lead-up to the collapse of his company FTX. Elizabeth Holmes, founder of the bogus medical tech startup Theranos, was jailed for 11 years for fraud last month. The list goes on. This media negativity might be coming as something of a shock to Silicon Valley's stars. Though the amount of sceptical coverage they've received has risen over the years, many of them have enjoyed a mostly easy ride from the press and government regulators. Before its collapse, FTX was able to run ads like this one on US national TV during the Super Bowl without so much as a warning message. What's up? I'm getting into crypto. With FTX. You in? I believe I'm in, but still hate you. Understood. Is he in? Yep. Did he say he hates you? He did. I get it. That's NFL superstar Tom Brady calling Boston to get some of his former New England Patriots fans on board with the crypto exchange. Hopefully those guys, along with the ordinary Americans watching that ad, didn't sink too many resources into FTX at Brady's behest, given the exchange went bust just months later. As those ads ran on TV, Bankman-Fried was busy fielding patsy questions like this one at a tech conference in October. Where do you see FTX in five years? Yeah, so, you know, obviously, uh, I don't know for sure. 
He may not have known for sure, but he should have had an idea given the entire company collapsed a week later. Crypto, at the very least, has had a harder time from the press than some tech companies, most notably those promising transport revolutions. Here's Volvo NZ's Kobe Duggan talking to RNZ about the future of self-driving car technology back in 2016. Um, but 2020, 2021 is the territory we're talking about for level four, which is um, the first level of full autonomy, uh, which is where the driver relinquishes responsibility. So it can be emailing or texting or putting on their makeup. It does sound amazing. It's so soon. If it sounded amazing, it's possibly because the idea that people would be applying their makeup in fully autonomous vehicles on New Zealand roads by now was, to put it mildly, overly ambitious. Volvo and RNZ were hardly outliers in taking a sunny view on driverless technology back then. The Herald also reported in 2016 that self-driving cars could be on the road by the end of that year. One of its opinion writers, Paul Minette, urged the government to delay every road and public transport investment wherever possible in anticipation of the driverless revolution. And another columnist, Matt Heath, said Auckland City Link would likely be obsolete by the time it opens because by then computer-coordinated driverless pods would rule the city. Six years have come and gone since then, and pandemic delays aside, there's no sign of self-driving cars on our roads. In fact, they look further away than ever. Ford and Volkswagen shut down their jointly funded autonomous vehicle startup Argo AI in October, saying the technology was still a long way from being brought to market. Other flawed transit-focused tech companies have gotten boosts from sympathetic or insufficiently critical media coverage as well, including Uber, which once said it would ease congestion in cities. In fact, the opposite has proved true. But no one has benefited more than the aforementioned Musk. His company Tesla got a rush of good press when it joined the push for driverless vehicles. It's now arguing in court that its experiment should only be labelled a failure rather than a fraud. Musk also promised to fix what he called soul-destroying traffic by building a network of tunnels underneath and between cities through his startup, The Boring Company. Though actual transport experts dismissed the idea as a farcical distraction, several cities cancelled their own transit plans and invested in the company after buying into his vision, only to see it cease all communications after running into minor regulatory obstacles. On an episode of the Vox podcast Today Explained, Curb's Alyssa Walker said the boring company saga bears eerie similarities to an episode of The Simpsons where a salesman convinces the town of Springfield to fund a shoddy monorail that promptly breaks down. And what's so funny about everybody referencing this monorail episode of The Simpsons is that the way that the boring company can build its system in Vegas is that it has to be called a monorail <laughs> so on all the documents <laughs> on all the documents it says like the boring company is now operating a monorail Mono, don't and all this is before mentioning that Musk's Neuralink startup is under federal investigation after killing 1,500 animals in experiments. Musk has got away with peddling exaggerations, half-truths and no-truths, partly because of his innate audacity and undiluted self-belief. 
Social media has expanded the reach of these kinds of confidence men, allowing them to build cult-like followings without having to win over so much as a slightly sceptical newspaper editor. But figures like him have also got support from gullible or access-driven parts of the press, which have uncritically repeated their utopian promises and self-aggrandizing mythologies. As late as this April, the respected tech journalist Kara Swisher was warning people not to underestimate Musk or his Twitter takeover, telling New York magazine he was a visionary and complex. Following his actual stint at Twitter, she wrote this in a tweet addressed to Musk. You may be my greatest disappointment in 25 years of covering tech. Well, you and having to interview Jeff Bezos on a Segway once. It may have taken a semi-disastrous dip into social media to dim Musk's luster for some, but a few journalists and commentators have always been distrustful of big tech's big promises. One of them is Adam Conover, who fact-checks popular misconceptions and casts scorn on powerful figures on his YouTube channel. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Sam Bankman-Fried. For years, we've all been told that these tech titans are literal geniuses, visionary thinkers who earned their power through sheer intellect. But after what we've seen over the past few months, I think we finally need to admit, once and for all, that these people are idiots. And they have been the entire time. Another is Paris Marx. They've just written a book titled Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About Transport. They spoke to me back in October, before Musk's Twitter drama, about the importance of applying a highly sceptical eye to any tech billionaire who comes promising a transport utopia. For the past 10 or 15 years, whether it's Uber and ride-hailing services or autonomous vehicles or, you know, hyperloops or all these other sorts of things, you know, there were a lot of visions for the future of transportation that were sold to us by very powerful and influential people and companies in the tech industry. Um, they were supposed to solve a lot of problems that everyone recognizes exist in the transport system. And the tech industry offered us technological solutions to say, you know, we don't need to have difficult political conversations or discussions around transportation. All we need is to wait for technology to improve a little bit, and then we can solve these things. Do you think in general reporters have been skeptical enough of these promises from tech companies? No, definitely not. And I, I think that we have seen a bit more skepticism, as I said, in recent years, um, especially since around 2018, when the Cambridge Analytica revelations came out around Facebook. And that started with a lot of criticism around Facebook, but I think spread out to a certain degree to a number of other tech companies as well, as there was a desire to look at them more critically, look at the actions that they've taken um, in a more critical light. For a long time, there was a real desire to buy into what Silicon Valley, what these tech companies were promising us. And now uh, I would hope that after learning that, it's really incumbent on us to keep asking those questions as companies keep making big outlandish promises. You know, as we've seen in the past few years with cryptocurrencies or the metaverse, there was a much more critical orientation toward these proposals from the very beginning. And I think that really helped us to kind of suss out what they were really proposing. I think to realize that a lot of the promises that were being made in real time were never going to be realized and were never as emancipatory as a lot of these companies were claiming. Um, and there's also a desire to, you know, be close to some of these companies that have the kind of access so that you can do the reporting um, on them. And so there, there are conflicts there as well. 
Yeah, well, one of the most pervasive recent ideas in the media, electric cars are going to save us. They'll decarbonise the transport system. They'll allow us to continue living as we do now. And that's prevalent in New Zealand. You see it from our columnists in the media. It's advanced by major political parties. You don't think that's correct. Can you explain why? Yeah, um, I think that electric cars certainly have a part to play in this transition, right? We do need to reduce the emissions of the transport system. And in societies like Canada, where I am, or New Zealand, you know, where you are, um, we are not going to get away from driving altogether overnight, right? This is not something that's going to happen. So the electric car will have a part to play in this transition. But then the question is, you know, how much energy do we put into just converting the vehicle fleet from internal combustion engines over to battery electric? And how much energy do we put into trying to ensure that people don't need cars altogether to get around? And I would argue that the more sustainable path and, and the better path that we should take is to try to incentivize or try to build our communities in such a way that as many people as possible have real alternatives to driving into the car so that they don't need to buy an electric car altogether and can also ditch um, their internal combustion vehicle too. And so I think that's really the discussion right now as to which path we take. You know, do we continue on this road where we're dependent on cars, where most people have to own and drive cars just in order to get around? Or do we offer those people real alternatives through transit, through cycling infrastructure, through designing our communities in ways that are more walkable so that they don't need those cars altogether? You've listed a whole bunch of, I guess, failures of tech promises in the past. There's more in the book. How should reporters actually amend their practices in light of seeing these repeated failures from the tech companies? How should they report these things? Yeah, it's difficult, right? Because one thing that we need to acknowledge, of course, is that there has been a lot of pressure on the revenue of media organizations in recent years, um, you know, particularly with companies like Facebook and Google taking away advertising revenue. The companies can say something, can put out a press release, can make an announcement, and then whatever they say just kind of gets repeated in these stories. And I would hope that at least in future, now that we recognize and we can see that there are often many downsides to what these companies are proposing, and they are often unable to fulfill the promises that they're making to us, you know, when reporting these announcements or these claims by these companies, that journalists are at least trying to seek out um, a few critical sources to give an alternative opinion on what these companies are claiming um, and to actually see what the likely impact is going to be rather than just what they want us to believe they're going to be. Just like a lot of problems, does it come down in part to economic incentives? Just like tech companies have economic incentives, journalists do too. They want to produce clickable stories that get readership. And these kind of magical sounding tech solutions, are, in a way, they're more interesting and clickable than just writing build more rail lines, create more regular and reliable public transport. Yeah, which is unfortunate, right? <laughs> but certainly, you know, because of the claims that these tech companies can make, because they can be so inflated, they're certainly much more exciting. And they also kind of build on ideas that a lot of people have about what the future should look like, right? There, there have been a lot of science fiction stories that have imagined the future in a particular way. And a lot of these tech companies and, and founders and what have you are inspired by these stories and these ideas that come out of science fiction. And so it's then kind of convenient to look at them and say, oh, you know, this is the future we were promised. This is the future that um, these these companies and these these tech leaders are building. 
But I really think that we need to come back to fundamentals and, and ask, are these things going to be realized? Are they actually going to solve the problems that they claim to solve? And what are the, especially when we think about the transport system, you know, what are the forms of transportation? What are the interventions in the transport system that we can make that will really solve the actual problems that people face in getting around? And often it's not the types of things that the tech companies are proposing. You're put in charge of all the media coverage of transport today. What do you change? <laughs> I'm, I'm not an editor or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I think I would certainly want to see a greater focus on the way that people get around the issues that exist in terms of transportation now, like a greater focus on the difficulties that people have in getting around the city. The Disabled people, people that can't drive, that kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. The people who can't easily, um, you know, use the system that we have today, or that are also or that even though they might have a car still find it difficult to get around, you know, obviously, we've seen petrol prices go up a lot in in recent months, you know, there's a question as to how much they will come back down. But there's also just the general cost of owning a car in general, whether it's the cost of owning it, the cost of insuring it, the cost of fueling it up, the cost of maintenance, all these sorts of things that go along with it. Um, you know, should we keep expecting people to pay so much of their income toward transportation or should we be ensuring that we have, you know, good public transportation systems or good cycling infrastructure so that they can get around in a much more affordable way? Um, I think I would want to see much more of a focus on those things and also to have more of that history in our reporting, right? To make sure that people understand that, you know, the car is is not there just because uh, everyone desired it and loved it. And, and that's the reason it was embraced. But because there are certain, you know, commercial interests that benefit from us all being stuck in a car. Um, and it's no surprise that now that we're having this debate, um, it's becoming controversial when we suggest that people should move away from having cars, from owning cars, from having to pay all these various costs for ownership um, and should just have a service that's provided by the government so that they can get around. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, Paris. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. That was Paris Marx, author of the book Road to Nowhere, talking to Hayden Donnell there about the often unfulfilled promises of tech gurus and Silicon Valley companies and the need for media to scrutinise the seductive claims they make about their innovations.